The world has never been more connected and never more divided. Most of the media panders to what you believe and distorts what you don't, reinforces biases and exaggerates divisions. We live inside echo chambers. But change doesn't happen inside an echo chamber. It's time to stick your head above the parapet, to step out of the bunker, to stretch your legs and step on some landmines, friends. It's time to have uncomfortable conversations. G'day, humans. I thought I would uh, speak to you one-on-one today about uh, the past week, getting back to Australia, the uh, the Twitter fallout of going on Joe Rogan, uh, follow-up research about myocarditis, Djokovic being deported from Australia. Lots happened. A lot has happened. Hope you've had a lovely week. And uh, if you're uh, if you're just joining the show as a result of having seen me on Joe Rogan, then welcome. We won't always just have me ranting. We'll sometimes talk to other interesting people as well. But hey, I'm interesting too. So it's just me and you. Let's sit down. Let's have a cuppa, cup of tea, cup of coffee, if you'd prefer. Maybe some ayahuasca. We could do a ceremony, take a fantastic trip, whatever you want to. I'm not pushing any kind of substance on you. This is your moment to sit down with old Uncle Josh. It's been quite the week. Uh, about, uh, I would say, a small majority of uh, of the tens of thousands of messages that I've got on social media uh, have uh, been broadly supportive, saying thanks for uh, putting uh, forth a, an alternative point of view than the one that we often hear in alternate uh, media, especially in the States, about Australia and, and vaccines. Uh, and a, a large minority making the very good point that I am an authoritarian Nazi bootlicker apologist for a fascist totalitarian dictatorship in Australia, and I should go back to wherever Australia is, uh, which many of these people don't know. But, uh, you know, both good points, both excellent points for me to digest. I've sort of uh, just, you know, skated over the surface of it, as one does with Twitter storms. They run hot, but they run fast. And now I'm back uh, happily ensconced at uh, ABC Radio in Sydney, broadcasting about sane things. I must say, I was a bit surprised by the whole. If, if you don't, if you're not aware of this whole brouhaha, I don't know where the hell have you been. Am I right, people? If you're not aware of it, where have you been? Uh, but if you're not, then uh, after I spoke to Joe Rogan, someone clipped some uh, 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 what I thought was a fairly amicable exchange about the you know the relative risk of getting heart inflammation after getting an mrna vaccine versus getting coronavirus itself and uh, simply because we we disagreed about the data there it became this you know obviously the the headline hack writers end up turning it into australian journalist in fiery exchange with rogan and i can only imagine people clicking on it and going hmm didn't seem very fiery I mean, we we went on to talk for two and a half hours about all kinds of other things and subsequently have been texting each other back and forth and, you know, we all seem fine with each other. Anyway, that's just what the media does, isn't it? Um, One thing I would say in the the wake of it, because there's been a lot of a lot of dude bros hitting me up with, you know, read this article or read this piece of research about myocarditis. There actually is an elevated risk among specifically 15-year-old males who live in Jersey who have blue hair 
they, if you just analyse it and if you squint really hard and you turn the paper upside down, the graph clearly shows that they are at higher risk of myocarditis, but not pericarditis. But look, in order to resolve all this, I actually, on my radio show yesterday, we asked the Heart uh, Institute, the Cardiology Institute of Australia, who know the most, more than anyone, about heart issues to put forward someone who was across all of the latest research about myocarditis and vaccines. And they gave us uh, a consultant cardiologist at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital uh, in Sydney, who's also a board member and clinical practice advisor with the Cardiac Society of Australia and New Zealand, who's across all the data. So in other words, I didn't go to uh, like a pro-vaccine person or a public health expert or an epidemiologist who was going to potentially be biased towards the benefits of vaccination. I went specifically to someone who concerns themselves only with heart health. And I spoke to him for half an hour in a new segment I've got called Do Your Own Research, where on the radio each week or each every other week, I'm going to take something that people online are saying, do your own research about. You know how people say that to you? Do your own. Well, I don't know. Have you heard about the the 5G waves, have you heard about, you know, I mean, QAnon might be a little bit crazy, but there's a lot that QAnon said that, have you heard about the child sex trafficking ring that Donald Trump is getting rid of? Have you heard about, well, climate change that, you know, a lot of climate scientists are dissenting about that you need to do your own research. You need to do your own. Don't be a sheeple, sheeple. You know, don't uh, don't just trust what you're being spoon fed. Do your own research. No, you don't. No, the world's too complicated. Things are too complicated. How are you going to do your own research? How would you even know what peer-reviewed papers to look up? How many of them to read? Who to trust? How to read the graphs and the data? It's way too much. How could you possibly do your own research about all this stuff? That's why we outsource our expertise to experts. And then at some point, yeah, maybe some of the experts are full of shit, but at some point you've got to sort of make a judgment call about how many of them would have to be full of shit in order to be pulling the wool over your eyes. And unless you're a conspiracy-minded maniac, there's going to be a point at which you go, all right, look, lots of you smart people know more about this than I do, so I'm not going to listen to this one individual who happens to be on a podcast, who happens to be dissenting just because he's got good credentials if he is regarded by his own peers as being a crank. So anyway, this bloke who I had on on uh, my radio show, Professor Raj Puranik, Uh, He was quite clear that the reason why you see myocarditis in young males is because the spike protein in the vaccine very occasionally can cause uh, heart inflammation. He said it's, it's almost never serious and it's almost always treatable and it's very rare. But his point was that the reason why you're getting that from the vaccine is because of the spike protein. In other words, the the people who are getting that adverse reaction from the vaccine would have gotten a, an even worse adverse reaction from the virus itself because it's the it's the spike protein that's causing the myocarditis. So the same mechanism by which anyone is getting uh, a side effect from the vaccine would be the mechanism by which they would get that same condition from the virus itself only worse because they also wouldn't have the protection that the vaccine provides. And I asked him about the Oxford study, which Majid Nawaz and others on Twitter have 
uh, cited as being definitive and have claimed that I brought out-of-date information to Joe Rogan, when in actual fact it was just that Jamie, Joe's producer, pulled up a, a New Scientist article which vindicated my position and which I have subsequently gone down the rabbit hole and checked is the overwhelming uh, representation of what most experts believe on this. <clears throat> but there's some recent uh, Oxford study which suggests otherwise, suggests that there might actually be higher risks of myocarditis among uh, young males than there is from uh, you know, from the vaccine than there is from coronavirus. But this uh, expert who I spoke to said that's one study. If you look at the aggregate of all the studies, in particular, if you look at Israel, which is probably the best place to look because they're more uh, mRNA vaccine based, whereas the UK is AstraZeneca predominantly, which is not an mRNA vaccine, then out of Israel, it shows the reverse. So, and then he added the point that like, if the mechanism that for, that's causing the myocarditis from the vaccine is the, is the spike protein, uh, and that's the same thing that they'd be getting from coronavirus, then it just doesn't make sense that the vaccine would be worse for you in this particular respect than the virus itself. Then you've got to add to that, of course, that there are all kinds of other things that catching COVID does that's bad for you. I mean, it's not just myocarditis. It also gives you all kinds of weird other things, potentially. I mean, if you get a bad case of it, and admittedly, young people don't get bad cases of it very often at all. But if you infect tens or hundreds of millions of people of people with it, which will happen if you don't have high vaccination rates, then some of those very rare things like long COVID and fatigue and muscle aches and brain fog and all those correlated things that you can get from getting COVID, uh, you have to add that to the to the ledger when you're thinking about the risk of, of uh, catching COVID. So my general takeaway from this whole thing has been as a sort of meta way of thinking about it, my rule of thumb is don't be suspicious of facts you know, of, or of authority only in one direction. Like the, the, there is a certain credulity in being a hyper-skeptic. Like there are, I understand the instinct of a lot of the people who've been hitting me up on social media who are in the kind of alt-media space to be skeptical of mainstream narratives, to do their own thinking, to want to do your own research uh, oh, yeah, I don't know if I finished that thought about the Do Your Own Research segment that I'm going to be doing on ABC Radio Sydney, but basically we're going to take a different thing that has become a Do Your Own Research sort of meme online, and we will do the research for you. So you don't have to do your own research because you shouldn't have to do your own research because you can't do your own research, and nor can I. But we will talk to experts on the air and uh, we'll ask them to resolve for us the, the questions, the kinds of things that people, uh, you know, at a barbecue or at a bar will sometimes say to you, oh, you know, do your own research into, you know, UFOs or something. Well, we will do the research. Don't worry about it. So anyway, those types of people will tend to have a lot of, uh, you know, suspicion about mainstream narratives, about what governments and institutions are telling them. And I am skeptical of that as well. I mean, I think you'd have to be an idiot not to take with a grain of salt things that people in positions of power tell you. Uh, and there are, there is a lot of bullshit, frankly, that comes from big business and big industry and big government. I mean, we've seen the lies of tobacco companies, the lies of big oil companies, the lies of big drug companies, the lies of governments. And I think it's totally appropriate and laudable that many people... Uh, are suspicious of the official line on 
coronavirus, on vaccines, on whatever, up to a point, up to a point, because there is obviously a financial incentive for drug companies to be pushing uh, vaccines. And so if it was only drug companies that were telling me that vaccines worked, I would, I too would be very suspicious. I don't, I don't trust vaccines because the drug companies tell me not in a million years. I trust it because we've had almost 10 billion doses, uh, 4 billion in 4 billion individuals, and we haven't seen bad uh, side effects in so many different countries. So I, I just trust the sort of common sense of there being hundreds of different jurisdictions that have been doing this with hundreds of thousands of unaffiliated doctors and nurses and public health officials all looking at the the results and the level of kind of subterfuge and conspiratorial collaboration that would have to be going on behind the scenes to be systematically covering this up everywhere from South Korea to New Zealand to America to Bulgaria is just not plausible. So what I would say to sort of skeptically minded people is there are two kinds of bullshit. There's the bullshit that comes out of big tobacco, big drug companies, big oil, big government. But then there's also the kind of bullshit that floats around in superstitious circles and can be quite tempting to believe precisely because it is anti-authoritarian and anti-elite. There's the suspicion of genetically modified foods, which far exceeds any risks of genetically modified foods, which have been being used for decades now and don't seem to have any health side effects. I'm not saying that there aren't corporate side effects, that there aren't side effects for farmers. There are no health problems with consuming genetically modified products. And yet, you know, you'll see anti-GMO labelling all over the place. And there's still a huge amount of suspicion about it. The same thing applies to the latest nuclear energy facilities. I mean, nuclear power now, the new technology is incredibly safe and is carbon free. And the idea that it's still taboo to talk about it in some circles as part of our response to climate change is a sort of a superstition. And there's, you know, in in the lowest vaccinated parts of Europe, largely German speaking parts and Eastern Europe, there's a huge reverence for things like homeopathy, which is complete nonsense. Homeopathy tablets and medicines are just water. The belief is that if you dilute the water with a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of some compound and then dilute it so much that there is no none of the compound left in that water chemically, so that it's just water chemically, that the water remembers the compound and exerts some extraordinary <laughs> psychedelic biological effect on your cells that gets them into some spiritual state that helps them to understand the illness. I mean, the whole thing is absolute nonsense. But you understand what I'm saying here. Don't just direct your skepticism in one way. Don't just direct your skepticism towards big, nasty, nefarious conspirators. Also direct your skepticism towards the peddlers of nonsense on social media or towards people who claim that they have the latest graph and the latest study and the latest data that shows you this. And so really, actually, Joe was right and Josh was wrong and blah de blah Look, who cares? Who cares? At some point, take the, the word of people you trust. At some point, you're going to have to outsource a certain amount of your skepticism and your understanding of the world to people in positions who are better to, better better trained at understanding things than, than you are. Not everything can come from a podcast. Not everything can come from a blog. Sometimes, unfortunately, we 
sort of do have to trust the hierarchical systems that have created civilization and that continue to promote public health, however clumsily they might do that. The other thing that I just want to say is that, you know, some Aussies have hit me up saying, I can't believe that uh, they can't believe that I was so sanguine about what's going on in Australia. I must say the vast, vast majority of Aussies, over 90, 95% have said, thank God you, you know, you went and disabused Americans of this idea that we're living in a totalitarian dictatorship since things have gone so much better here than they have in so many other countries uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, by the way, on, on that point, I should also just uh, just flesh out some numbers here, which are just in case you're not in, a, in Australia and you're, you're not aware of them. Uh, so Australia uh, has basically had 96 to 97% fewer uh, deaths from all causes than the United States uh, per capita. I believe that's correct. Yeah, so Florida has had 63,000 deaths, Texas almost 77,000. This is just for, from COVID. Australia's population is between Florida's and Texas's, and our deaths were 2,500 last time I checked last week. It's probably up to a little bit above that now. So 2,500 versus about 70,000 uh, for the same population in uh, Florida and, and Texas. And we've done that largely through uh, border closures and uh, and lockdowns. Now, to the people who have hit me up from particularly Victoria saying that I was sort of callous in characterizing life as normal, I feel your pain. I was I said at the beginning of the of the Rogan episode that I was talking about the majority of Australians, by which I meant people in the most populous state of New South Wales, and then add to that some of the other states like WA and Queensland, which have been largely COVID-free. Um, Melbourne is its own own unique story and whether or you know over the over the course of the next few years we will be looking at the the things that the victorian government did in terms of nighttime curfews and the duration of the lockdowns and the severity of the lockdowns and we'll be trying to figure out whether or not there was a uh, a justification for for those uh and um it's probably too soon to tell but i absolutely grant that the duration of those lockdowns was Absolutely grueling for so many people who were there. What I do think is misleading about the way that it's perceived abroad is the occasional viral video of police brutalizing somebody for not, you know, I don't know, wearing a mask, or at least that's what's claimed in the viral video, becomes a proxy for the way that things are in all of Australia. So what I was trying to say was that the places that have successfully had border closures and had limited lockdowns in order to suppress temporary outbreaks uh, actually have enjoyed life basically like uh, pre, a pre-pandemic period. I mean, for most of last year, for the first half of last year, Sydney was completely open and completely COVID-free. And that would, that basically ran from yeah, from the middle of twenty nine of uh, twenty twenty to the middle of twenty twenty one, Western Australia was able to sustain that essentially in perpetuity. Uh, they've never had a significant outbreak or, or lockdown. Uh, and yeah, so have most other states apart from Victoria. Now, that doesn't excuse uh, police overreach, but it, it's just worth remembering uh, that any time you try to enforce rules, there are going to be fringe cases that are unpleasant. I mean, is the United States a country that is untouched by police brutality, by viral videos of police doing bad things. 
I mean, I know, you know, if you're listening to this in America and you're thinking, well, I've seen a lot of bad stuff out of Australia, trust me, everyone outside of America, I hear from people all the time who say, wow, I can't imagine being like a black person in America. I mean, it just must be so dangerous walking down the street. I mean, you know, you must just be at risk, constant risk of getting shot by police. Now, it is not incredibly dangerous to walk down the street as an African-American in the United States, in spite of the number of viral videos that we see of unarmed black men being killed by police. You know, the reality of America is not that, as non-Americans might think on the basis of videos that they see on social media, that crowds of fat Walmart shoppers on Black Friday stampede each other to death and that that's what shopping in America is like. You know, non-Americans also see videos of of gun rights protesters carrying AR-15s into Chick-fil-A and, you know, fast food restaurants and think that that's what it's like to live in America. Well, I lived in America for 12 years. I never saw someone carrying an AR-15 into a fast food joint. Like, you know, of course, I mean, if something goes viral on social media, then almost by definition, it is highly unusual. That's why it's going viral. Uh, if it was the norm, you you know, you, it would, you wouldn't, people wouldn't need to share it and talk about how extraordinary it is. Uh, there are some people who are listening to all of this who are only interested in like rejecting everything that I say that doesn't align with your preconceived ideas. And that's fine. The world's always going to have closed-minded uh, people. But, you know, my message out of all of this would be that if, if you're genuinely curious and if you're a listener to Joe Rogan, then you probably are, then consider that social media is selective and also consider that what might feel like defiance in sticking up for causes that you believe in can also veer into pig-headedness. It can veer into parochialism. Like, it's a lot more fun to feel like an uncompromising fighter in the battle against Australian tyranny than to feel like a, a wishy-washy both-sideser who sort of tries to rationalise why public health initiatives in Australia have looked the way they have. But just remember that you might feel like an uncompromising fighter against Australian tyranny, but rigid, uninformed ideologues and reactionaries also feel like uncompromising fighters. Assholes also feel like uncompromising fighters. Dickheads also feel like uncompromising fighters. So my basic point is, let, can we all just put our weapons down for a second and actually listen from a place of conversation? The other point about myocarditis, vaccines, vaccination, vaccine mandates, and whether or not I'm an authoritarian Nazi bootlicker for thinking that the actions of Australian Australia broadly as a country and New South Wales specifically as a state have been well within the bounds of, uh, of, of democratic processes during an emergency and do not represent a slide into totalitarianism, is that, like, Public health is the sort of missing thing here, and I sort of wish I'd brought this up on Rogan's show. Yes, getting vaccinated is your individual right, and it's your right not to. And I don't think that we should be destroying people's lives for not doing it. I don't support universal vaccine mandates like they have in Victoria, where you're not even allowed to allow you, leave your house to go to, uh, to go to work, regardless of what your job is, unless you're vaccinated. I mean, this is silly. Like, allow people some individual autonomy. Well, I don't object to specific industries, specific government departments and things requiring that, you know, if you're going to be a nurse or a doctor or a cop, 
if you're going to be interfacing with the public, then you basically have to do everything that you can to reduce your risk of infectiousness. And being vaccinated doesn't eliminate the risk that you're going to get infected or pass on the um, the bug, but it dramatically reduces it um, somewhere in the sort of two to three to 10 at the upper extent time range. And when you think about public health things, like it's not always helpful to think about, well, what is my individual risk and what is my individual, the likelihood that I as an individual, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to catch it and I'm going to pass it on, I'm going to get sick from it. The point is there are people who are either very old or very fat or very immune compromised who are at risk and who will always be at risk regardless of their vaccination status at serious risk. These people are going to end up clogging hospitals and taking up intensive care beds and losing families and creating individual disasters and tragedies all over the joint. And the way to minimise that is to make sure that as many people are vaccinated as possible. So for me, it's a little bit like having, you know, clean drinking water or requiring that people who work in the kitchens of our restaurants wash their hands after going to the toilet. Well, like, you know, like think about the actual likelihood that you're going to get sick from eating food as a result of someone who works in the kitchen not washing their hands. Like, it's pretty low. It's pretty low. I mean, someone can, frankly, a cook can do a piss and then not wash their hands and then prepare your steak, and you're probably going to be fine. But if you multiply that across all the cooks in America and all the meals they serve, it's much better as a general policy for us all to agree that when cooks go to the toilet, they wash their hands afterwards. Like that's a public health thing. It's not an individual choice thing. Uh, It's the same with something like fencing, putting fences around swimming pools. Like I hate fences around swimming pools. I (laughs) I love being able to walk from a balcony down into a garden and then go straight in the pool. It's annoying to have fences around swimming pools. Uh, in an individual case, it's almost certain to be useless. Like it's very unlikely that a particular fence around a particular pool is actually going to save a particular child's life. But across the whole country, when every pool has a has a childproof fence around it, then you save a significant number of children's lives every year. And or you know, if you're if you if you like guns, for example, think about rules about whether or not guns should should be loaded or unloaded, and whether they should be kept where they should be kept and how they should be stored. Like in any individual case, if I'm a gun owner, it's not actually very high risk for me to keep a loaded gun in a safe place as long as it's, you know, you put it on top of a, a shelf or something where a kid can't get it. Or if I don't live with kids, what's the harm in just having it in my bedside drawer? It's unlikely that a loaded gun is actually going to kill anybody in my house. But multiply that across 330 million people in America have the rule of thumb be that loaded guns are around and you have a lot of casualties. So it's better just as a rule for us all to agree, you take the, you, you unload your gun and you keep your gun in the safe and you keep it separate from the ammunition. And that's what we're all going to do. And as a result, we all get a public health pay, pay off of that. That's the way I think about vaccines. I don't think about it as like, what is, how am I going to, you know, sort of try to splice and dice the specific data that Marjit Nawaz has sent me and that Tim Pool is like disputing online and who am I going to trust and how's, what about what Brett Weinstein said and what about the guest that Joe had who said this or who had that? Look, billions of people have gotten vaccinated. Billions of people are fine. We know that the vaccines are effective at reducing, not eliminating, but reducing the spread of the virus and at almost eliminating your risk of death or severe disease. 
Now, it's not perfect. Uh, you know, I just saw that Tim Pool, genius, uh, you know, Nobel laureate in waiting, uh, tweeted uh, on the 19th of January today, someone I know who is triple vaxxed just got COVID. WTF is the point of the vaccine. I mean, do I even need to dignify that with a response? Is this just trolling everybody at this point? Like, is anyone so stupid that they don't understand that just because a cure isn't 100% effective, if it's 99% effective, that that isn't a good thing? Like, is 99% effective the same as 0% effective? If you are triple vaxxed, you can get COVID. Absolutely. If you are triple vaxxed, you are much, much less likely to get severe COVID. So you're less likely to be infectious, you're less likely to get infected, and most of all, you're somewhere in the range of 10 to 20 times less likely to get seriously ill. Uh, so that's the point. Timothy. Uh, another thing, another interesting thing uh, about Australia's infectious infection rate, it was surreal coming off the plane and entering Australia and realising that I was coming from jurisdictions with less infection than Australia. Australia, it's... It's funny. It's like, you know, you you get you, we've spent two years just being like, oh, we're this little paradise where we're all just trotting around doing nothing. We're going about our normal lives. Oh, occasionally we have to stay inside for six weeks or eight weeks. The worst case in Sydney, I think, was about 14 weeks or something in, inside. That was an absolute pain in the ass. But we were still allowed to go outside. We were still allowed to exercise. We were still allowed to go for jogs and, you know, at some point have picnics in the parks once enough of us were, were vaccinated. So we got on with it. And 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 part of the sort of national identity was that we were doing well at suppressing COVID. We had vanishingly low numbers of infection and vanishingly low numbers of death and vanishingly low numbers of all-cause mortality as well, which as an aside is something that I thought I might get to on Rogan's show, which I didn't get to, unfortunately, which is you sometimes hear people saying, uh, oh, you know, what if we'd all just done what Sweden did because Sweden uh, was effective at uh, not having lockdowns but also not having uh, huge amounts of mortality. But if you compare Sweden to its neighbours, to other Scandinavian and Nordic countries, uh, I was looking at these graphs. Uh, you can actually just go to Worldometer, that website that aggregates all of the information, or Our World in Data is, is another good one. And they'll superimpose those graphs. You can just pick uh, uh, all-cause mortality. So, because I know a lot of people are, are skeptical about the COVID numbers and think they might be inflated, and they say, "Oh, well, you know, how do we know that? Uh, you know, the if hospitals are get." I heard this. I heard the doctor on Joe Rogan's show say this a few weeks ago. If doctor, if the hospitals and doctors are getting paid per COVID patient, then there's an incentive for them to over-report the COVID patients. So, someone comes in with a gunshot wound who also happens to test positive to COVID, they list it as a COVID death. Well, that's ridiculous. That would be absolutely absurd. Um, occasionally that happens. Uh, I've looked into that. And yes, it, it is listed. There is no systematic way of counting COVID in the United States. Like so many parts of the American health system, it's just a hodgepodge. It's a patchwork. There's no authority. So, you know, it will sometimes be listed on on the death certificate that the patient was died with COVID. And that might go into a state uh, database where it's listed as a, as a COVID patient. However, most experts think that the incidence of that is much less than the incidence of people who are in, for example, nursing homes or low-income communities or public housing projects who die of COVID and they never get counted as COVID because there's no systematic way of counting those numbers either. So most most of the world's experts think that the COVID numbers are undercounted in America, not overcounted, because although there's a little bit of overcounting in hospitals, there's a lot of undercounting in outside of hospital settings. Anyway, that's all on the side. 
So I had these graphs that I was going to take to to Rogan in case we got into an argument about Scandinavia, uh, Sweden, and so on. And they show all cause mortality, not just coronavirus, not just COVID deaths. Because even if the people who are skeptical of official COVID statistics were right, and even if it were true that there were far fewer COVID deaths in America than officials claim, what you wouldn't be able to hide is overall mortality, just the total number of people dying from all causes. That's the simplest way to determine how successful or unsuccessful countries have been at managing the public health aspect of the pandemic. Don't worry about COVID numbers, just worry about how many corpses you've got. And when you look at that, Australia is just this low, you look at Australia, South Korea, New Zealand, all these other zero COVID countries, and they're basically, you know, fairly flat lines. In fact, some of them are under, I think Australia is under what you would expect it to be on the basis of previous years. And then you superimpose Sweden, and you've got this massive spike, and you superimpose America, and you've got an even more massive spike. This is per capita, right, per million, so it doesn't matter how populous the country is. You just take a million people and see how many, how many of them end up in body bags. And then the UK, and you've got an even bigger spike. So all of that is just to, to say that uh, you know, there's a, a huge amount of, of uh, death that, abroad that was avoided in Australia. So here we were thinking that uh, we were uniquely uh, free of uh, coronavirus in comparison to other countries. And, uh, and now, since November 1st, uh, New South Wales opened up to the rest of the world, meaning that essentially Australia did as well, with the exception of the states that have remained closed, like Western Australia. Uh, you know, lockdowns were lifted, uh, mandatory restrictions were basically ended, and what happened was what every epidemiologist and health expert and politician knew was going to happen, which is cases exploded, which is fine. It's inconvenient. It's tragic for the people who are losing their lives and getting sick. Uh, it's enormously stressful for people trying to figure out you know, their risk profile of going to various barbies or parks or picnics or bars or movies or whatever. But this was always going to happen. And the fears of the sort of the, the people who were claiming that authoritarianism was knocking on Australia's door, that Australia would never reopen and would sort of remain in lockdown forever, uh, have been proven false in the sense that it was always only a short-term strategy. I'm not sure what the strategy for China or New Zealand or you know some of these other zero COVID countries are in the long term because I don't know at what point they're going to want to introduce the pathogen. Uh, into their communities. But in the case of New South Wales, it was just like, we're over this, we're, we're, we've given up trying to suppress it for too long now that Omicron is here and we're, vac- we're as vaccinated as we can be and we've got the hospital capacity that we can have, we're basically ready to brace it. So the past two years have not been Australians largely shying away from the fight of addressing coronavirus, but rather if you can choose to get your ducks in a row and to corral your army before the enemy invades, why not? Just press pause, let leave the enemy offshore for a little bit, get vaccinated, get yourself ready, and then let her in. So since November 1st, we've been letting her in. And it's been, it was weird, you know, getting off the plane and coming into a, an Australia where the infection, the ambient infection rate is so much higher than the places that I was coming from, even though I was coming from places that we normally think of as being really infectious, like the United States. 
And uh, there's been some some stupendously idiotic takes on social media here. I got a, a tweet from someone uh, who tagged me and Claire Lehman, the editor of Quillette, uh, who's also Australian. And the person just said, your country is a giant steaming turd. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting point of view. I wonder what informs this particular perspective. And uh, I looked uh, I looked up and it's a response to a tweet from the 10th of January uh, from a critic of Australia saying, Australia just reported nearly 112,000 cases, the equivalent of 1.5 million in the US. And cases are up a mind-boggling 808,000% since the Washington Post said Australia had almost eliminated COVID with science. I wonder if we'll ever find out why the science, trademark, stopped working with a graph showing uh, daily new cases in Australia throughout the whole course of the pandemic and all of the list of lockdowns. Lockdown, 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 lockdown. Uh, Australia almost eliminated the coronavirus by putting faith in science is one of the uh, the lockdowns. That's a Washington Post article, which is listed as uh, coming from uh, November of uh, 2020. Then you've got all of these different lockdowns leading up to uh, the, uh, the, the final lockdown. And it, the graph is going low, 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 low. It's just creeping along. And then after the lockdown, it's got this massive spike in cases that goes almost vertical uh, starting in November and December. And this person thinks that this graph shows that Australian lockdowns didn't work and that the science, quote-unquote, stopped working. Let me remind you. The graph shows an almost horizontal line of zero cases while all of these lockdowns are taking place. Then the lockdown ends, the last lockdown, and then several months go by, and then the zero, the near zero cases go vertical. That's not the science not working. That's the science working. That's the predictions of the epidemiologists and the public health officials all doing exactly what we thought it would, which is when the lockdowns are used sparingly and judiciously and in a targeted fashion at outbreaks, they do suppress the spread. Then a conscious decision was made, a policy decision, that the time was ripe to end the lockdowns and to open the border and to let Australians come come back into the country, vaccinated Australians to come back into the country for now. And we knew that the, the, the graph was going to go vertical. We knew that cases would explode because we're choosing to let them in. That's the science. Like, well, I don't, I honestly have a hard time understanding how people could be that stupid to to go like, Australia's got lots of cases, but they didn't have lots of cases, but now they have lots of cases now that they're not locked down. So obviously the lockdown didn't work for two years while they had no cases with the lockdowns, but now they're not locked down anymore and it went vertical. Well, where's the science now? That's the science, dum-dum. That's the science. So anyway, lots and lots of cases here uh, in Australia. Uh, and lastly, a few of you have been uh, quibbling with my use of the word alt-right to characterize some people on this part of the, on this side of the spectrum, <clears throat> Tim Pool. 
which I did on Joe Rogan's uh, show. Uh, yeah, I just mean, I, all I mean is like alt-right for me is just any sort of like fake news obsessed anti-establishment internet warrior who thinks that they're God's gift to civilization because they're more angry about tyranny than everybody else is. And they're more obsessed about the lies that the lamestream media is pumping out to cover up the elite's plans for domination. Uh, I, don't, I don't really care whether you call yourself left or call yourself right. That's the worldview that I'm talking about. Um, and the main difference between the worldview of those people who've been parachuting in to try to save Australia from itself and Australians ourselves is that we, we all in Australia, are, we're already keenly aware of all the problems that they're citing. Like we're fully aware that it sucks to have to follow rules. It's not like, oh, it's not like we're going, oh, thanks. Thank you, like alt-right internet warrior for pointing out that it it is not nice to, you know, have to wear a mask and be vaccinated and to obey to abide by public health restrictions and to you know to isolate yourself if you've been a close contact if you're in the context of a uh, an unvaccinated indigenous community and like we get it we're the ones living through it we're fully aware i mean in order to believe the narrative of the of the australia has fallen crowd you would have to believe that the vast majority of australians are so stupid they can't even see what's going on around them Maybe many people do think that. I also get a lot of people on Twitter saying, like, the Germans didn't realise what was happening until it was too late and the Reichstag fire had burned. I think a lot of them knew. I think a lot of them knew what was going on. I think they could see the writing on the wall. Anyway, we'll find out, won't we? I mean, let's, let's you know, maybe Tim Poole and I can talk. Uh, by the way, for people who, saying, who are saying that we should talk, my offer for him to come on my podcast still stands. Uh, he's invited me on his podcast, which is fine, uh, whatever. So my producer has reached out to his producer, and we're just waiting for that to happen. So if he if it doesn't happen, then it's completely on him. It's I'm absolutely 100% eager to clarify any misconceptions uh, that that might exist in a convivial and friendly way. I don't, I'm not a person who bears grudges, and I don't not talk to people just because uh, they disagree with me. Um, yeah, and the last question is the one that some people have said about concentration camps, about like, you know, a lot of people on social have been like, well, you might not like the word concentration camps, but like uh, a quarantine facility is a sort of a concentration camp, even if they're not killing people. To me, that's just sophistry. That's just semantics. I mean, like to, to give you an example, if I think it depends on how bad the pathogen that you're trying to protect people from is if ebola arrived in say a remote part of the united states let's say alaska and ebola is starting to spread in a small alaskan community and there are like inuit uh native american communities around who would be completely ravaged bleeding out their eyes wiped out and so on would it be acceptable if there was an old mining compound up there to with the consent of community leaders forcibly take the people who were in the next town over who were about to catch Ebola and put them in the military, uh, in the in the mining uh, area uh, in order to protect them or to take people who'd been infected and put them there until they were no longer infectious so that it doesn't spread to the rest of Alaska and the rest of North America and you don't have an Ebola outbreak in the United States. If your answer to that is yes, that sort of thing would probably be acceptable, then we agree that concentration camps, quote unquote, the way that that term is being used, 
by these figures, these social justice, Australia has fallen, fallen alt-right, not alt-right figures, are using the term, right? I mean, if, if it's ever okay to have a public health emergency justification for creating a cordon sanitaire or a quarantine area for infected people or to impre- or to protect people, then we agree that concentration camps are okay. So if you're going to go at me for using that term, whatever, I don't care what you call it. I think it's a bit mischievous to call it a, qu- a concentration camp. And I think the people who use that term know that it's mischief- mischievous, which is exactly why they use it. But if you really push the boundaries and sort of test the edge cases by thinking about hypotheticals in which it might be acceptable for people to be separated from each other during a public health emergency, then it doesn't really matter what word you use. I think we would all agree that at some point that becomes acceptable. So now we're just uh, squabbling over whether or not it was justified at particular moments of this particular pandemic in response to this particular virus. Uh, I think that'll do uh, do for, for now won't it? Uh, I hope you're doing well. I hope this has sort of given some sort of context to all of this. As I say, I think the brouhaha with Joe was a storm in a teacup. He and I are still mates. uh, And uh, he thought the conversation was fantastic. He loved the fact that it went all over the place. Uh, And really, we only spoke about, you know, coronavirus and vaccines for about half an hour. If you haven't listened to the whole thing, listen to the whole thing. We talk about aliens. We talk about consciousness. We talk about artificial intelligence. We talk about virtual reality. We talk about augmented reality. We talk about so much. I love talking to that guy. I love it. It's just like talking to you know someone who has such a, a wide and curious outlook on, uh, on the world. Uh, that's why I paid sort of no heed to the pot shots that conventional media were taking when they just sort of get to jump on a bandwagon and go, <laughs> uh, yeah, all right, we'll be back to normal program. We've got some great, great guests coming up. I won't even spoil it, but make sure that you actually subscribe to the podcast. Oh, and by the way, I know it's a pain in the ass and every podcaster asks you to do it, but the whole like rating and reviewing on iTunes thing actually does help people find the show. Why don't you just now, like right now, right now, right now, pull your phone out of your pocket. Pull your phone out of your pocket. Just go to your podcast app, whether you're on Android or you're on uh, or you're on iPhone, and just rate it and leave a little review. I know it's stupid. I don't know why it's set up that way, but it's not that it, it's not that it gets gives us good reviews. It's that even if you give me one star, it just shows the algorithm that there's activity on the show, so it bumps the show up, you know, allows other people to find it. Uh, so that would be great if you like the show or if you're just new to me and you sort of, uh, you, you know, you want to do a good thing. I'm not going to ask you for money yet. Um, the show, this, the, the basic show will always be free, don't worry, but it would, it would be, uh, you'd be doing me a good solid if you just took your phone out right now, just give it a quick rating and just say, yeah, great show or whatever. You know, such, on such silly things do shows either succeed or fail. Uh, Terrific to have you with us. Uh, Love you to bits and I will see you next week. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.